Good morning. It's great to be here once again, and uh, I think today's one of those days that we look at those uh, air conditioning units up on the walls and say a big thank you. <laughs> it's going to be a warm one today, and uh, you know what? We're blessed to be here inside and uh, enjoying fellowship as well as some cool temperatures as well, so um, it's great to be here. Thank you for uh, those songs that you chose to lead us in worship this morning, Dad. The, uh, the refrain of uh, that one song, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That is an incredible, sorry about that feedback. <laughs> that is an incredible, incredible line. How can it be? And I think that's a great way to go in our continuation of our series on unmerited favor. And this morning, I want to pose for you a, a, a question that I have been puzzling over this entire week. What if God wasn't gracious? Let's uh, turn our hearts to God now in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we come to you once again, and we give to you our heartfelt thanksgiving, our praise, and our adoration, as we even consider how great your love is that you, our God, would die for us, would die for me. And no greater love has any man that he lay down his life for his friends. And you have demonstrated that love by calling us your friends and then laying down your life, paying the ultimate sacrifice. And so, Lord, as we consider that this morning, would you stir our hearts again to this incredible truth? Thank you, Lord, for each one who's come here this morning. Would you speak to them in a unique uh, way for their situation, for their need, uh, Lord, for their encouragement and for their challenge, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to each one of us. Cultivate our hearts even now that we would receive the seed of your word. I pray, Lord, for uh, this, this time in our world as we, as we consider, Lord, what we've been hearing about on the news happening in the Middle East. We think of Egypt, and we, we think, Lord, of our brothers and sisters there who are experiencing tremendous persecution. Lord, that this morning, even as we come and gather in peace, there are those who are gathering and not sure if they will be attacked by mobs, if they will be, have their buildings burned down. Uh, and so, Lord, we just want to lift them up to you. We don't know their individual situations, but you do. And we know that your hand is there. And so we pray, Lord, for their, uh, for their protection, Lord. But even more, we pray that they would not lose heart. We pray, Lord, that you would sustain them daily with your grace and that even through persecution, we know that your message can go forth in even more power. And so we pray for that power to rest upon them in Egypt, Lord. We pray, Lord, for your guidance in that situation. We pray for the other nations of the world that are in turmoil. We pray for Syria. And we pray, Lord, that in all of these places, your will would be done. We pray, Lord, for our land of Canada. And we pray, Lord, that here in this place, in this time, we would continue to be faithful to what you have called us to be. You have called us to be the salt of the earth. And you have called us to be the light, a city on a hill. And so I pray, Lord, that we would not shy away from that and put our lights under bushels, but that, Lord, we would put it up on its stand where it belongs so that everyone can see the hope that we have in you. May we live it out daily. And so, Father, we continue to pray for these ministries that are doing this in such an awesome way. We pray for Turtle Mountain Bible Camp. We thank you, Lord, for what you are doing there. We pray that you continue to give the staff health, uh, encouragement, uh, Lord, uh, insight as they continue to speak into young lives. 
Pray, Lord, that you would continue to grant Howard and Kathy wisdom and vision as they guide and lead in that place. Thank you for the ministry there that we can partner in. Now, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are a gracious God. But now for a moment we want to ponder, if that were not true, what would that mean for us? And so, Father, lead us into truth, I pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Where was the well? Where was it? The desert sun was scorching and the wind was blowing. And the sand from the desert was whipping up around them. Stinging their eyes, causing her to choke. When she had started out her hurried journey, she was certain that she knew the way. But that had been two days ago. Or was it three? She couldn't quite remember anymore. The heat and the dehydration was beginning to take their toll. She wasn't even sure if they were going in the right direction any, any longer. The gnawing whisper that had been popping up in the back of her mind was coming out again all the stronger. Louder with each step. You're going to die here. You're going to die out here in the wilderness, and no one will even know. And worse yet, no one will even care. And with that thought, the bitter tears once again began to well up in her eyes as the pain of rejection once again threatened to overwhelm her. But no, she couldn't give up. She couldn't give in. Because her son, her precious son, he must live. His life was all that mattered. If only her son could live, then somehow all of this would be worth it. But even as the thought renewed her resolve to press on, she looked behind her only to see her son collapse, face down in the cracked desert soil. Quickly she darted back to him and lifted his face out of the sand. She gently cradled his head on her lap. And she already knew that the skin of water had been empty hours earlier. But in desperate hope that maybe some miracle had occurred in the interim, she opened it one more time, holding it above his parched lips. Nothing. Not even one solitary drop of water. No miracle. No water. No hope. Only death awaited them. Desperately, she looked around and spotted a scraggly bush nearby, and she dragged her son underneath into what little shade it provided, and finally he opened his eyes. Forcing a calm she didn't feel, she once again began to tell him that all he needed was a little more rest, and then everything would be all right. They'd be okay. But the words rang hollow. His eyes said it all. They had the look of death. There would be no getting up from this rest. She knew it. And he knew it. At that realization, something just snapped inside of her. She just couldn't bear to watch him die. And as quickly as she could, she she staggered to her feet and began to run. And staggering and stumbling away from him just as fast as she could. But before she got very far, with her energy gone, she slumped to her knees, utterly defeated. There was no need to hold anything back anymore. The hot tears stung her eyes, and the cry that emitted was one that only could come from the rejected and crushed soul of a mother. Her body heaved as she sobbed uncontrollably. How had it come to this? Hagar's mind flashed back to 15 years earlier. 
She had known even then that Sarai's offer was too good to be true. Bear my husband a son for me, and I will treat you well, and we will raise him together. But of course, once she was actually pregnant with Abram's child, everything changed. Sarai became increasingly jealous and soon began mistreating her so cruelly that she had run away. And that's where she had met him. At Bir Lahai Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. There at the well, he had appeared as a man. But she immediately knew that he was no ordinary man when he had asked her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? How had this complete stranger known her name and position and situation? The man then went on to tell her that she should return to Sarai, submit to her, and that her reward would be this promise. I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. You will have a son and name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. And so it was true. This was no ordinary man who had spoken to her. He had been the physical manifestation of God himself. And so she named him the God who sees me. He was not blind to her troubles after all. He saw her and he cared. But where was he now? Why was he suddenly blind to her need now when she needed him the most? That had been 15 years ago, and she had been careful to keep her end of the covenant. As difficult as it had been, she had returned to Sarai, submitted herself meekly and obediently to her, and had silently endured all of her cutting words and scorn heaped upon her daily. But even after all of that, the moment Sarah had her own son, Hagar and Ishmael became expendable. Even worse, they became competition for Abraham's affection and inheritance. The memory of it was still fresh. It had only happened a few days earlier. Abraham had woken them up early in the morning, and immediately, one look at his face, and she knew her worst fears had been realized. Abraham had finally given in to Sarah. He was kicking them out. His manner was abrupt and to the point. He held up a skin of water and a chunk of salted meat placed in a sack. He quickly silenced any objections and placed them on her shoulders. And in a strained voice, he told her the directions to the well in the desert of Beersheba. If they reached the well, they would be able to cross the desert and be well on her way to her homeland of Egypt. It was only in his farewell to Ishmael that he had shown even a hint of emotion. But he had quickly sent them off before he would change his mind. No, she didn't blame Abraham. She knew he was just doing whatever it took to keep the peace with his wife. But whatever his motivation, the betrayal felt the same. He may as well have been giving them a death sentence. But even more than that, she felt utterly betrayed by God himself. But why? Why had he met her then at the well? Why had he made all of those promises if he hadn't intended on keeping them? And suddenly, it occurred to her. He was the God of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. 
not the God of Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael. Isaac was the promised heir. Ishmael was only competition. And what God, in his right mind, would let the competition live? No God that she had ever heard of was that merciful. None of the gods of Egypt that she had grown up with were, cert- were not that merciful, and certainly none of the Canaanite gods were known for their mercy. In fact, they were known for their opposite, demanding child sacrifices to appease them, and always in competition for people's devotion and allegiance. Those were the types of gods she knew of. Why would this God of Abraham be any different? Maybe she had been a fool to believe his promise. And so here she was, on her knees, rejected, abandoned, helpless to save her dying son. And worst of all, Elroy, the living one who sees me, saw her no longer. She would not have descendants too numerous to count. And Ishmael, her precious son, would not become the wild donkey of a man who had become the father of a great nation. No, they would die here in the desert. What if the story ended there? What if that is the the last statement of the story of Hagar and Ishmael? What would that mean for the rest of Scripture? And what would it mean for you and I? What if the God of Abraham was really like that? A God without mercy. A God who turned a blind eye to people in trouble and a deaf ear to their cries for mercy. In other words, what if God weren't gracious? Consider for a moment the implications for the world if God was not a God of grace. He could still have all of his other divine attributes. He would still be perfect, holy, righteous, just, all-knowing, all-powerful, and loving. Yes, even loving. But you may say, well, isn't love enough? But consider this. How far can love go without grace? You see, love requires a response. And how many times would it take for God's love to be spurned and rejected, spurned and rejected, before he finally says, fine, have it your way. So even with all of those divine attributes... What would he do with a world as messed up as this if he did not have mercy and grace? What choice would he have? Think about that. Every single day on planet Earth, the cries of injustice are raised around this world as the rich feast while the poor starve. Every single day. And every single day, Blood is shed as man inflicts violence upon man. Whether in Egypt or in Syria or right here in our own land as babies are aborted in the hundreds of thousands every single year. We cannot stop killing each other or even our own. This world is continually filled with violence. Man against man, brother against brother. At what point would a perfectly holy, righteous, and just God just say, Enough! And then consider for a moment. Let's bring it around the corner and bring it home a little bit more personally. What about your own life? And the promises that you have made, that you have broken. 
The times where you have given your word and not followed through, whether to man or to God. Consider like Abraham who lied about Sarah being his sister and not his wife, the lies you have told, whether bald face or simply by making the slightest adjustment to the truth so that it was a little bit more palatable. Consider, like Sarah, the resentments and jealousy that you have harbored, whether towards a father or mother, brother or sister, neighbor, acquaintance, or maybe just a complete stranger. Consider the gossip you have spread, whether knowingly or unknowingly. The things you have stolen, whether big or small. The times where you have refused to forgive so-and-so because, well, you've already given them a second and a third and a fourth chance, and how many times am I really expected to forgive someone after all? I think I'll just stop there. (laughs) You all get the picture, right? So think about this. Even if God is love, but is not gracious... Even if he loves us without mercy and grace, at what point does he just reach the breaking point and, like in the days of Noah, say, it grieves me that I have made man and just wipe us out, flush us away, hit the reset button and start over. I mean, why keep trying to work with us in spite all of our inherent flaws, our, our fatal attraction to sin, our repeated disobedience, our kisses of betrayal, and our outright denials of even knowing Him. And to be perfectly honest with you, if I were in the place of God, I think I would have gotten fed up with Danny Greening a long time ago. Let alone the world. And I suspect that you probably feel the same. Yeah, that Danny Greening, let me tell you, if I were God, let him have it. No one's laughing. Oh, shoot, maybe that hit a little too close to home. You know what? I know that I need God desperately, and I need his grace daily. And I think most of you probably realize that for yourselves as well. But did you know that the God of mercy and grace that is described in the Bible is unique, utterly unique, standing alone amongst all the other religions of the world. Listen to how David describes the Lord God in Psalm chapter 145 and verse 8 and 9. This is a retelling of God's revelation of himself in the book of Deuteronomy. But David, listen to his take on it. He says this, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Now, in striking contrast to this, when we consider the other major world religion, when we think of Islam, and there we consider Allah, the God of Islam, while being described as capable of love, it is limited specifically to those who are obedient to him and the teachings of Muhammad the Prophet. Those on the outside of that are not recipients of his love, nor is it expected of him to show it to them. But in the Bible we see that while we were still enemies of God, while we were still mired in sin, he demonstrated his love by dying for us. What a contrast. Allah is also described in one of his names as being most gracious and most merciful. 
In fact, before performing any good deed, or any deed, period, whether good or not, a, a devout Muslim would usually say basmala. That's Arabic, meaning, in the name of Allah, most gracious and most merciful. Basmala is a short form of saying that. His name, invoking it. Allah, most gracious, most merciful. And yet, in a cruel, ironic twist, those exact words have been spoken before invoking jihad or holy war against the infidels. And so, many Muslims, just prior to performing an act of incredible violence, will say, Bismillah, in the name of Allah, the most gracious and the most merciful, and then go on to blow themselves up with as many civilians around them as possible. And they have invoked the name of the most gracious and the most merciful. Does that sound like a contradiction to you? Because it is. How do we invoke grace and mercy and then do something like that? Now, of course, there will be those who say those are the extremists or those on the outside, and yet this is a valid interpretation of the Quran. And so as we consider this, we see, yes, he is called capable of these things, and yet we see the expression of it so far from that. And when we consider the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Yahweh, the I Am, we see His graciousness and love not expressed through violence, but expressed through incredible self-sacrifice. There is no other God described in any other religion of the world that is like Him. Years ago, a large international conference was held of religious leaders from around the world. In the midst of the conference, a debate began about what was it that set Christianity apart from the other religions. And some argued that it was God coming in the flesh that set Christianity apart. But they decided that that wasn't it because other religions claimed that their gods came in human form as well. And some argued that it was love or sacrifice or the resurrection or one thing or another and each idea kind of being shot down one by one. And finally... C.S. Lewis, having arrived late, walked into the conference and asked what all the noise was about. When told what they were discussing and asking the question, what was it that set Christianity apart from all the other world religions, he said, that's easy. It's grace. How true it is. The thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion Every other cult, every other system of beliefs is that single word, grace. The unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of God. I'm going to get a little bit radical here for a moment. I'm going to tell you what I believe. I believe that without God being a God of grace, not only would we not be capable of receiving salvation... I don't believe that this world would still be in existence. Maybe that sounds a little extreme, but listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Speaking about the Lord's return and addressing what people were saying, why is he taking so long? This is his reply. Listen. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. 
and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Did you hear that? The reason that that has not yet happened is why? Because God is merciful. He does not want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. You see, my friends, if it was not for God's incredibly long-suffering mercy and gracious desire that everyone should come to repentance, that day of reckoning would have long since arrived and you and I would not even be here to discuss it. So how thankful are you? (laughs) How thankful are you today that Hagar's story didn't end in despair and in death in the desert? I trust that most of you know how her story ends. And you can read it for yourself in Genesis chapters 16 and 21. On her knees, still sobbing, she hears a voice. And it says to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw the well. Delirious with joy, she runs to it. She fills the skin with water and not even taking time to drink herself, she runs back to Ishmael. And with shaking hands, she pours the life-giving fluid into his parched mouth. He would live. Her son, her precious son, saved by the God of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Huh. But he was not only their God. He was also the God of Hagar and Ishmael. The God who sees me is also the God who hears me. He saw Hagar the first time, and in his mercy he made her a promise. And he heard Ishmael the second time, and in his grace kept the promise. God's spirit was with Ishmael as he grew up, and he became a great archer. And as most scholars agree, the father of all Arabic people was none other than Ishmael. And true to God's word, his descendants were in constant struggle with those around them, specifically the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a struggle which has continued to this very day in the land of Palestine and around the world. A lesser God, one without mercy and grace, would have averted this problem by simply eliminating the competition. Hagar and Ishmael would have simply died off in the desert, but not the God of Abraham. For he is not willing that any should die, but that everyone should come to repentance. And this includes you, this includes me, the spiritual heirs of the covenant that God made with Abraham. But you know who else it includes? It includes the descendants of Ishmael, the Muslim nation. God's desire is for them to meet him through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not by the power of the sword, but through the power of the cross of Calvary, the place where grace flowed freely through the shed blood of the Lamb. This is God's desire. And you know, as we watch the news, and we hear of what's happening in the 
land of Egypt right now. We hear of how the Muslim Brotherhood and, and devout Muslims everywhere in Egypt are rising up in violence and they're attacking Christians in the churches and we pray for our brothers and sisters there. It's easy to say, you know, those, those, those Muslims, we just need to fight back against them. But is that what God did? Did God say, eliminate the competition? They're a threat to my heir, my promised covenant. No, he said, in spite of that, I will show them mercy. I will give them grace. What a God. He is not like us. He is not certainly like me. We would say, get rid of the competition. But God is not like that. God is above what we are capable of. And yet he calls us to follow in his ways, in his footsteps, to show a path of radical self-sacrifice and love even to our enemies. What a calling. What a God. A God of mercy and grace. I want to close this morning with a great article that illustrates the concept of grace. It was written by Charles Stanley. He writes this, One of my more memorable seminary professors had a practical way of illustrating to his students the concept of grace. At the end of his evangelism course, he would distribute the exam with the caution to read it all the way through before beginning to answer any of the questions. This this caution was written on the exam as well. And as we read the test, it became unquestionably clear to each of us that we had not studied nearly enough. The further we read, the worse it became. About halfway through, audible groans could be heard from the lecture hall. On the last page, however, in the smallest font was written a note, and it said this, You have a choice. You can either complete the exam as given, or sign your name at the bottom, and in so doing, receive an A for this assignment. What? Puzzled sounds and and whispers were heard throughout the hall as different students read the same thing. Was he serious? Just sign it and get an A? And slowly, one by one, the point began to dawn on them. And one by one, we turned in our tests, signed our names, and silently filed out of the room. And when I talked with the professor about it afterward, he shared some of the reactions he had received throughout the years. Some students began to take the exam without reading it all the way through, and they would sweat it out for the entire two hours of class time before reaching the last page. Others read the first two pages, became angry, and just turned the test in blank, stormed out of the room without signing their name. They never realized what was available, and as a result, they missed out. One fellow, however, read the entire test, including the note at the end, but he decided to take the exam anyway. He didn't want any freebies. He had studied hard. He would earn his grade, and he did. He made a C+, but he could have had an A. This story illustrates many people's reactions to God's solution to sin. Some people look at God's standard, moral and ethical perfection, and just throw up their hands and surrender. Why even try? It's impossible to attain. I could never live up to all that. So why even try? 
Others are like the student who read the test through and were aware of the professor's offer, but took the test anyways because I'm going to earn it. Unwilling to simply receive God's gift of grace. His incredible love and forgiveness poured out and not one thing we can do to earn it. They set about to rack up enough points with God. But God's grace truly is like that professor's offer. Just sign your name. Have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. That's it. Have your name signed in blood. There's not one other thing that you can do. And you'll get an A in God's kingdom. It may seem unbelievable. But if we accept it, then like the stunned students who accepted that professor's offer, we too will discover that, yes, God's grace truly is unmerited favor. All we have to do is believe, accept, and live in that grace. And so may we today have renewed thankfulness that our God is a God of grace. Personally, I hope you are thankful for that. And I pray that it does something to you to know that this gracious God is not only one who poured out mercy and favor in the past, but that he is one who will pour it out in the present and into the future. And so as we look at our struggles, not only in our hometown, in our families, maybe in our, in our own circle, and perhaps even in a marriage relationship that you haven't let on to anyone, God's grace is available there today. And it will be available there tomorrow. And as we consider the path our nation is on, and we consider where that could lead in the years in the future, and we see us increasingly slipping away from God, oh, we're going to need God's mercy and grace in the future. May we never stop remembering that we each need God's mercy and grace every single day of our lives. So, I hope that turns the corner that we will not withhold it from others, that we will not begrudge it to others when they receive it, be resentful, or say, the Muslims, they don't deserve it. Look at the violence they're doing against Christians. But no, even there, remember, God's offer of mercy and grace is available. And you know what? He wants us to be a part of extending that invitation. May we go out with that word today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've pondered even for a moment this morning what our status would be if you were not a God of grace. Lord, may that just shake us anew in that deeper part of our spirits and our souls to remind us how desperately we need your grace. How, if your grace was not all-sufficient, that this world would have long since undergone your judgment. But Lord, because we are still here today, isn't because you're slow, not because you're taking your time, but it's because you're incredibly long-suffering and patient. You're incredibly gracious, desiring that all should come to repentance. And so, Father, thank you that today is a day of grace. Help us to seize this day and every day of grace that we are given as a gift from you from this day until our last day. Bless us with your spirit and your power. Bless us with everything we need, every spiritual 
every spiritual gift and equipping, Lord, to live this out until you call us home. Oh, Lord, we pray that this message would break through somehow amongst the Muslim peoples of the world. We pray, Lord, that even in Egypt, as persecution is taking place, oh, Lord, may your grace and radical love be shown in an even more powerful way through the Christians there, that even in self-sacrifice, the witness would go out all the clear. And so, Lord, we pray that your will would be accomplished to this end, for we know it is your will, and we pray in accordance with it. Use us, Lord, to this end. Show us ways in which we can partner in what you are doing. And then give us obedient hearts to just put our shoulders to the wheel and start pushing. Use us, O Lord, we pray. By your grace. Amen.